morning, everyone. Thank you. Love it. Love it. Uh, We are in this series about Jesus for a year, and uh, at the beginning, we kicked off with the idea of Jesus and money. What does he have to say to us about our resources, our finances? And uh, we looked at a couple people. We looked at uh, the rich, the rich young ruler. We looked at Zach, Zacchaeus, and, uh, and how they used or didn't use their money for the kingdom. And uh, this morning, we're not looking necessarily at an individual, but at a particular passage. So, uh, would you do me a favor? We're going to read it together. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word? And we'll, it'll be on the screen, and uh, we will just read it together uh, slowly. Follow with me. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one, love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right, you can be seated. Thank you. Before we start kind of piecing through that particular passage, I want to talk about the understanding or our understanding of habit, habits, right? Uh, Many of us would say we have habits that are both positive and negative. There are traits or characteristics we have. And uh, just looking up a quick definition of habit, a habit is a regular tendency or practice, especially one that is hard to give up. I would imagine if you were to think through your life for just about 10 seconds or so, you would recognize that you have a habit or two, right? I think we all do. We have uh, different addictions. There's a study that said that uh, at any one time, all of us are juggling up to seven different types of addictions. Uh, It doesn't mean uh, like crazy, crazy addictions. It could just mean the coffee you're currently drinking, right? That all of us have these addictions at different levels, right? Um, But I think that definition doesn't really address the full understanding of habit because I think there are things that we seek to give up and things we seek to acquire. Both of those things can be considered habits. So let's take a moment and you can shout it out for me. What are some habits we seek to give up? What do we seek to give up? Hitting the snooze button again and again. Good. That is a habit for some of us. What else? Cell phone. Cell phone usage. Okay? Being addicted or attached to it could be a habit. What are some other habits? Facebook. 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 What else? Porn. Porn. Got quiet right after that one. Yes. (laughs) So you're not necessarily admitting your habit. You're just admitting habits, okay? Others. Procrastination. 
Good. That one so- starts off sounding so good. Pro. And then it goes bad really fast. <laughs> Procrastination. Yes. Yes, not good. We, we could list many more. Let's go for uh, some habits that we're actually seeking to acquire. So habits are things you give up, but there are also habits that you seek to acquire. What are some that perhaps we seek to acquire? Say that what? Wake up early. early. Good. Exercise. Scripture reading. Good. Bible study. Bible memory. Someone else said something? Tithing. Excellent. We might talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Any others? Yeah. Forgiving. That's a great habit. That's a great habit. Um, how many of you, like, every time you go to the dentist, every single time they ask you the question, do you floss? <laughs> like, every single time. I just look at that lady now and I'm like, seriously, you're going to ask again? Like, do, we, do I have to feel guilty in this moment? Right? Because uh, I've heard it said good habits are worth being fanatical about, right? That habits are important. They're a part of our lives and there's something that... Um, that honestly, we have debates about. I don't know if uh, these are, this is true in your life, but we wonder about the effect of habits. Let me give you a couple examples. One would be, should I give rewards to ensure certain habits? So let's say you have kids. Let's say you're a teacher. Should I give rewards that would instill certain habits? My mother, um, when I was younger, well, I shouldn't say when I was younger, I still chew my nails occasionally, right? I don't know if any of you have that habit, but uh, it's a habit that's been a part of my life, and uh, I just do it when I'm bored or whatever, and uh, my mom decided early on when I was young, like seven or eight, she's like, this is a habit you must kick, like I'm just for the betterment of your life, you're going to stop chewing your nails, right? And so my mom started out with negative consequences. She's like, this is going to end Russ's habit. And so I, I don't know who the sadistic scientist was that invented that stuff that you put on people's fingers. Like if you sucked your thumb when you were growing up or if you chewed your nails. They had this like crazy goo and you could like put it on your kid's fingers and it would like, you, when they would start to bite or they would suck their thumb, one, it tastes horrible. <laughs> Two, it like burns, it stings, Right? So obviously reinforcing this is a negative thing, maybe you shouldn't do it. Well, this might tell you a little bit about my character growing up. My mom would put that on my hands, I would look at her and go, lick it off, and then just start chewing my nails, right? <laughs> right in front of her. That'd maybe tell you a little bit about myself. But So she decided the negative consequences are not going to work. Let's move towards some positive reinforcement. So my mom decided that um, a jumbo bag of peanut M&M's might be what it would take to get me to stop biting my nails. And so that was, she goes, okay, I bought it. It's sitting there. When you've grown out your nails to the length that we've predetermined would be success, <laughs> um, then you get this bag of M&Ms. So I did. I went for like a month, and I never chewed my nails for a month. My mom was super giddy, like, this is awesome. Handed me this jumbo bag of peanut M&Ms. I grabbed it, proceeded to bite off all my nails, and then ate my M&M's, right? And my mom probably thinks that's one of the all-time greatest failures in parenting, and, uh, and has expressed that to me in the past, is like, man, that never worked. I'm so bummed. 
But here's, here's the truth. I told my mom not too long ago, I said, actually, I think it was one of the best things for me ever. Because when I was seven or eight, I realized for the first time that I could decide how I wanted to live. That I could make choices that rewired my brain, that changed habits and patterns, that determined the life that I wanted to live, right? Because that's part of a true understanding of habits. There's a quote in this book that says this, this is the real power of habit. The insight that your habits are what you choose them to be. So your habits are what you choose them to be. But sometimes... What if they're chosen for you? That's the other debate we have. What if they're chosen for you? Well, so we'll say something like this. Can you build up resentment for trying to create certain habits, right? Maybe you've heard that argument before, right? That maybe if you challenge someone to do something, they build up resentment for it, they get frustrated. It turns them off to the very thing that you were hoping that they would acquire, right? That's a narrative in our society. We talk about that a lot, and I think... We talk about that one within the church some. One of the easiest ways we talk about it uh, is in Bible reading or prayer, right? Growing uh, up, I used to hear often, you know, you should read your Bible, you should pray. And then uh, when I became a youth pastor, I would echo that same thing to the students. You should read your Bible, you should pray. And um, I remember I had numerous conversations with parents who would say to me, I don't want to make my kids read their Bible and pray. And I would say, okay, that's fine. Why do you not want to? They said, well, it could build up resentment. They could get to the point where they no longer want to read their Bible and pray. And uh, they may, at some point, not even like God. And I said, no, that's, that's fair. I fully understand that. So then I asked them, are there any other habits you reinforce and that you require them to do? And they're like, well, I... Yeah, I don't know if I do. I go, okay, well, you require them to brush your teeth. You require them to shower. And they're like, well, and I go, like, see, I have a junior higher in my house right now. <clears throat> I'm just going to be honest. If I did not require both teeth brushing and showering, I am confident if left to his own, he would go great extended periods of time having done neither, right? It, it doesn't matter. It's just like for some reason he doesn't want to. And so I reinforce, like, you smell like a skunk. You need to get a shower, right? It's bad. Get a shower, right? And every day, like, Dad, I had one, like, yesterday or the day before. I don't get one today. I mean, every day would be good. Let's get, this is a good habit, right? Now, I don't, and maybe I should, I don't lay my head on my pillow at night and go, I wonder if someday my son will grow up to resent my desire for his cleanliness, So much so that he will grow up to the point where he refuses for months on end to shower or brush his teeth and it will all be a result of me reinforcing my beliefs in hygiene on him. And it might happen. I don't know. I hope not. But we have these weird narratives, right? All around the idea of habit. What should we enforce? What shouldn't we enforce? Uh, Should we talk about it? Should we not? And I think the same is true when it comes to generosity. We've even talked about it in the church before that one of the phrases or one of the verses we tend to go to quite a bit is this all-time classic in 2 Corinthians. It says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right? We love this verse because, first of all, you can't tell me how much to give, right? 
Each one has to decide in his own heart. That's good. I like that. And I don't really feel like giving. doesn't really like sit with me really well right now. And so I would be giving reluctantly under compulsion. And God only wants us to give with cheerful hearts. Right? So I've heard this phrase before. But it's dawned on me to ask the question, what if generosity was actually a habit? Could that be something it becomes? Could it be something that you give cheerfully and then you get to the habit where you're giving regardless of whether it was a good day, a good week, a good month, but it just became a way of being. It just became part of who you were to be a generous person. So let's hold those thoughts on habits for a moment. We'll come back to it. And I want us to look at our passage. The section that we looked at <clears throat> finishes with this phrase. I put it in a couple different versions. You cannot serve God and money. Another version, you cannot worship God and money both. Finally, you cannot serve God and wealth. Right? So Matthew kind of has this uh, contrast lined up here that seems to be pretty strong, seems to be pretty obvious. It's one or the other. Right? There's no middle ground. You either love God or you love money. You either serve God or you serve money. Um, But there's no middle ground. In fact, he makes it really obvious in this section right above that phrase. He says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, if you look at the language in this verse, He starts off by saying, no one. Not some of you, or occasionally, or, uh, well, you're pretty good at it. But no one can. And then he says, these are pretty strong contrasts. You either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Strong language. Very much language of either or, right? So um, this week I decided to write um, my own version. So Eugene Peterson wrote his own version of the Bible, I figured. Why not? So I wrote the (laughs) New American Consumerism version. And here's what it says. Sometimes you can have two bosses. Try to keep a good balance between how much you love God and how much you love money. Both can bring great value to your life. That's how I think we in the United States tend to read this verse. You know, you, you want both. Both can bring great value. Both can be very important. But it's not an either or. It's always a both and. It's always, let me figure out how to find the middle ground. Because see, we don't like either or statements. We always love the idea of neutral. We want to be somewhere in the middle, right? That We recognize there are opposing forces in the world, and somehow we want to try to find the middle ground. So you have like good and evil, right? That's the most extreme of the two opposites end, right? I'm not suggesting that we just want to be in the middle. I am suggesting we don't want to be evil, but you would also hear many people say that I don't want to be just a goody two-shoes, right? That we have these, these ideas that the two extremes aren't where we necessarily want to be. We want to find a healthy medium, right? We want to be somewhere in that safe middle place. And we do this in lots of ways. We even do it with things like health. We'll use that as an example. 
So if you take this uh, continuum, with health being on this end, I just chose not to use any words for this end. You could probably think of different ones. Um, but health on this extreme, right? Here's what we tend to do, or at least I'll say I tend to do. I will say I'm not necessarily pursuing health, and you would tell me that if I'm not pursuing health, what am I pursuing? The opposite, right? But we tend to go, no, 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 no. No, I can just like sit in the middle. I can sit in the middle. I'm not getting any healthier. I'm not working out. I'm not eating right. I'm not. But all of those decisions to not move toward health are, in essence, a decision to move the opposite direction, right? We would say the same about God. So if we put God up there for a moment, we would all probably argue that if you're not pursuing God, you're actually moving away from Him, right? And this is something that's in our language quite a bit, this understanding that we're either pursuing the thing that we're chasing after, or in essence, we can't just, there's no neutral. There's no just pause. There is regression, if that's the case, right? But we like to try to find that middle. So we say things like, well, let's put God and money on there. And if those are the two opposite ends of the spectrum, as Matthew kind of indicates, it's either one master or the other, Right? Again, what we have probably done, for the most part, is try to sit right in that middle space. To where we can say, well, I'm not necessarily pursuing God, but that doesn't mean I'm pursuing money. So I just changed the words a little bit, and I'm going to put generosity on one end and entitlement on the other. My argument this morning is that if you're not moving toward generosity, if you're not becoming a more generous person, the default is that you are moving toward entitlement that you're drifting in that particular direction. It's one or the other. That you're either pursuing God or you're drifting toward money. You're either pursuing generosity or you're slowly sliding toward entitlement. I'll define entitlement as this. It's the idea that everything is mine. That I get to decide what to do with my money. Or I deserve certain things in life. That is the idea or the essence of entitlement. The idea of generosity is that all I have is a gift, that everything that I own is a gift from God. It's actually His, and that I just get to manage it for a little season. It's a choice to live open-handed, to say that it's not mine, it's His. Those are the differences between the two particular things. And I believe that if we're not moving toward generosity that what we're actually doing is moving toward entitlement so let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 it says this Matthew 6 goes on to say do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also right now, we've heard this phrase before, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth. The Greek command in this particular passage is very, very strong in its language. It literally says this, do not ever treasure up treasures for yourself. It's a little different than like, hey, you know, don't lay up treasure. It's like, do not ever treasure up treasures for yourself, right? In the ancient Near East... People had this odd habit of reserving the things that they valued, they treasured, 
And uh, much like the story in the Old Testament with Achan who buried that treasure, they would often bury their valuables. They would find a place either in their home, in their tent, nearby, in a you know, special kind of nobody knew where it was, and they would bury it. And that was their version of the bank, right? The scary thing about that is if someone knew about that particular place, then thieves could break in and steal. If you buried the wrong kinds of things, moth and rust would destroy them, right? And the idea was that even those things that you treasured the most had a temporal value to them. Even those things you had to worry about a little bit because even if you hid them, there was no guarantees, right? And I think if Jesus was speaking in today's context, he would say, don't hoard up money for yourself in your 401k, your bank account, in your property, since inflation, recession, and far worse may destroy their value. Right? It's just all we're doing is changing the language of what we treasure. We're changing the language of where we keep it. We might not hide it in a hole, but we might hide it in property value. We might not hide it in a hole, but we might put it and tuck it away in our retirement and savings accounts. Right? But either of those in contrast, is really talking about the idea of are you storing up treasures on earth or are you storing up treasures in heaven because the master that gets your attention and affection is the one that wins, right? I came across this quote a couple weeks back. We don't give because God has needs. I repeat, God doesn't need your cash. He doesn't come to us hat in hand sheepishly asking for funding for his mission. We don't give because God needs it, but catch this. But because in giving we declare his value to us and our love for him. That's what this passage in Matthew 6 is saying. Jesus told us if we want to know what a person really loves, we should follow the trail to his or her money. Do you see your resources as yours to benefit from? Or as opportunities to be generous to others. The world, of course, finds it absurd to be this open-handed with our resources. I earned it. I deserve to benefit from it. When was the last time your generosity made someone question your sanity? See, what he's describing here is this very thing in Matthew 6. He's saying where your treasure is, there your heart is. There your love is. So... Your actions with your money demonstrate what you love. So if I was to ask you, what are your actions demonstrating? Who has your affection? Where is your heart? Is your money driving forward the mission of God? Is your life one in which you're open-handed? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew then goes on to say this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your heart or eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. This is an obscure little section, it seems, right in the middle of two things that make absolute sense. You have don't store up treasures on earth. Instead, in heaven, you have known conserved two masters, love the one, hate the other, can't love God and money. And then we have this like thing right in the middle that makes no sense. 
that says that the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is evil or unhealthy, then that's not good if it creates darkness, but if your eye is healthy, it's good, it creates light, okay? So let me explain just for a moment what that means. The good light, or the good eye is this like body full of light, right? The bad eye, or the evil eye, is a life full of darkness. And often in the New Testament understanding of coveting, of desiring someone else's stuff, of being stingy with wealth, or stingy with resources, was this language that they used around the idea of an evil eye, right? We use eyes to describe a lot of things. They, they seem, their eyes seem to like pierce right through me, or, man, that guy just gave me the stink eye, or whatever, right? You get the idea that we use language around our vision or our eyes quite a bit. They talked about being a stingy, non-generous person with someone who had the evil eye. They coveted, they desired, they wanted something. And those that had a healthy eye uh, were ones that were fine with giving things away. So an evil eye, for example, in Proverbs 28, it says, A man with an evil eye hastens after riches, covets, desires riches, and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. In Deuteronomy, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. So like your eye, your evil eye would look on someone, see a need and say, forget it, I don't care. I'm not meeting the need, right? That's the idea of an evil eye. The healthy eye is a generous one. All throughout the New Testament, um, there's examples of the Greek word for healthy also being translated as generous. James 1, Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Over and over you see that language, right? Where healthy also equals generous. So Jesus is contrasting the same idea again. He's saying there's entitlement, there's stinginess, there's evil eye, and there's healthy, good eye, generosity, right? And he continues to... In every one of these examples in Matthew 6, create contrasts. Treasure in heaven, treasure on earth. Good eye, evil eye. Serve God, serve money. Over and over. It's one or the other, one or the other, one or the other. But again, I'm going to bring it up one more time because I think it's so true we have to keep reinforcing it that we fight for the middle ground. And I think in Christianity we've even created a term for it. We call it stewardship. Right? I know some of you are going, oh my word, I can't believe you just said that. Like stewardship's a good thing. Yes, it can be. But it all depends on what you mean by it. Have you ever had people tell you a word and you thought the word meant one thing and they thought it meant something totally different because you both had a different version of what that word means? That's what I think happens a lot of times with the term stewardship. So we create all this language around the idea that I can love God with all of my heart and at the same time I can figure out how to provide on my own for all of my needs and store up and save. And then we turn to like obscure passages in the Old Testament like uh, consider the ant, how it crawls all around in Proverbs and gathers food and you likewise should gather food or store stuff or something, right? And we use that verse as like, Man, this verse totally tells us that we're supposed to be all about savings and retirement. 
Uh, I actually was thinking this week it would be way better if the version in the Bible was like, consider the bear. The bear eats a lot, gets really fat, then lays around for a long time. Retirement. Yay, right? Like, that would make more sense to me if it was that. But it's not. And we skip right over whole sections of the scriptures that actually talk about every seven years you go back to zero on debt. If someone owes you something, you just go, don't worry about that, right? Every 50 years you go, yeah, like my grandparents' land that we like bought and then we sold and then we bought and sold, right? Like everything goes back to who owned it, right? I mean, that doesn't sound like a great retirement strategy. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like really smart to, to give away what we don't need instead of just storing it and saving it for a rainy day. But there is this truth that our decisions are either moving us toward God or away, toward entitlement or toward generosity. And if you look, there's two masters, and they're asking opposite things of us. Let me give you a quick list. One is asking you to live by faith. The other is asking you to live by sight. One is encouraging you to live for the kingdom. The other to live for today. One is saying rest in what you have. The other is saying wear yourselves out getting more. One, live for God. The other, live for self. One, be generous. The other, hoard, save up, store reason I bring these things up is because I'm going to go back to habit. I think our habits are choices. We get to define our destiny by our habits. Your habits are what you choose them to be. So this morning, it's my desire to wrap up by just giving us some practical ways to enforce the habit of generosity. All right? So let me give you a few. If you're taking notes, number one, start with giving. Start with giving. When you sit down to figure out your budget, when you sit down to start paying your bills, when you sit down to pay off college loans or to whatever it is you're doing, when you sit down, the first thing you should do is give. Write a paycheck or write a check toward wherever it is you're going to give. Write that one first. Here's how we tend to do it. We pay everyone we need to pay. We spend what we need to spend. And then we go, hey, what's left at the end of the month? That's what I'll give away. Doesn't happen. It might. I mean, you might give that a little bit here or there. But most of us would say, man, it's a little tight, right? This month's going to be a little tight. If we operate with the idea of give first... Every single time, I am convinced what it does is it enables us to see God provide in ways that we never imagined. It also gives us opportunity to say that the things that matter most to me are the things I'm going to commit to first. And then, because I know some of you are going, well, what if your numbers don't match at the end of the month? Then tell me what it is you value, right? So if you value giving and generosity, right? Then make that first and go without cable. Go without Starbucks four times a week or three times a week or two times a week, right? 
You get the idea. There is money available often. Not every situation, but often. But I think it starts with giving, giving first. Two, second, pray about it. Pray about it. Actually believe that you're supposed to give these decisions over to God. Don't make them on your own. Give your giving, your generosity, invite God into it, ask Him to tell you what it is He wants you to give. And there's a couple ways you can go about this, okay? Uh, I've seen it gone about several ways. One is to ask God for a number, a percentage, amount you want to give, like in terms of dollar signs, right? And make a decision based on what you want God to give, and then you figure out the rest of your budget. My wife and I, for over 18 years, have decided that what we're going to do every year is we sit down and we pray independently, and we ask God to give us a number, a percentage of our income, that He desires for us to give away the fall, this next year, upcoming, right? Every year, we've prayed separate. 17 of the 18 years, I kid you not, we did not have a conversation about it. We came into the same room and we said, okay, this is what the number I think God is telling us to give this year. And 17 out of the 18 years, it matched. The one time it didn't, it was like one percentage point different. Always. Just pray. Invite God into it. He wants to have conversations with you about money. Here's another approach. I have friends of mine that do this. They determine the amount that they can live on based on their expenses, based on... And then they said, they made a determination, that's the amount we're going to live on for the foreseeable future. And anytime we get a raise, anytime we get a cost of living increase, anytime we... Then that's money that we're going to earmark to give away. Right? So instead of their cost of living increasing... Their cost of giving kept increasing. Does that make sense? Here's a perfect example of it. In 1731, John Wesley, then age 27, began to limit his expenses so that we'd have more money to give to the poor. He records that one year his income was 30 pounds. Let's pause here for a second. 30 pounds. A pound at that time, if you were to make it equivalent to today, it would have been about $1,000, okay? So income one year was $30,000, 30,000 pounds, and his expenses 28 pounds, so he had two pounds to give away, okay? So year one, two pounds to give away, that's what he did, he gave it away. Story goes on. The next year, his income doubled, but he still lived on 28 pounds and gave away 32, or $32,000 away. The fourth year, he made 120 pounds, again, he lived on 28 and gave $92,000 away. Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe, but give away all extra income once the family and creditors were taken care of. One year his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds, but he gave away all but 30 pounds. Most of the 30,000 pounds he earned in his lifetime, he gave away. What he chose to do is say, my standard of living is not going to increase. I'm well taken care of. I'm well provided for. I can live comfortably. But instead, I'm going to have this opportunity to say, what could I actually give away? How could I impact this world for the gospel? How can I move mission forward with my giving? So pray about it. Number three, make it a habit. 
We're talking about habits. Make it a habit. Giving once is not a habit, but rather it's an easing of guilt. Okay? That's my particular opinion. So here, let me give you um, an example of this. We have this uh, weird narrative that goes like this. Uh, I'm not giving, I'm not giving, I'm not giving, I'm not giving. I hear a great story about kids in Africa that need something, and then I give money, and I feel generous. And I'm like, yes, I, I did that once, and then I go back to not giving, not giving, not giving, not giving. And then people go, hey, what about generosity? And I go, yeah, I gave the, I gave the kids in Africa, and I'm, I'm generous. I would say that that is less of a story about generosity and more a story about your heart was tugged. That was great. I'm very grateful you gave to that. That's awesome. But that is not a life of generosity. One does not coin themselves at that point as generous. I don't think. That's my opinion. Right? So let's put it in a different scenario so it doesn't get too personal. Uh, let's say um, the way I love my wife. Let's say I did nothing, did nothing, did nothing, did nothing, barely even talked to her, cared less about her, didn't compliment her on anything, one day came home, dozen roses, did nothing, did nothing, did nothing, did nothing, did nothing. I love my wife. She's amazing, right? You would be like, what are you talking about? You are a flat-out jerk. That's what you are, right? You would look at me and you would go, no, 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 no. That's not what you call love. That's the farthest thing from it. I would argue, not give, not give, not give, not give, give, not give, not give, not give, not give, would not be considered generous, in my opinion. Again, I could be far off, but more or less an easing of guilt. Branks makes this statement, giving out of your surplus does not make you generous, it makes your selfishness more tolerable. Giving while you are lacking is what pleases the Lord. Right? I think some of our generosity is about just having our selfishness be more tolerable. Number four, ask for generosity advice. You realize that uh, we get advice for everything. We do. We get advice about what we should buy, what we shouldn't buy, what the best brands are for what it is we're buying. Uh, have you even noticed that sometimes on Facebook, people like will just post those posts that are about advice? I've never understood that, but like, hey, um, best place to eat dinner, go. And then like 50 people comment on the best place to have dinner, right? We're getting advice constantly from people. We even ask for advice from money managers. You realize that, right? We have wealth management people we go to. What should we do with our savings? What should we do with our spending? Where should we invest? How much retirement do we need? Like, we ask advice on all of those things. Right? I would say, ask for advice on your giving and your management of God's resources. Right? And I would start with someone that you trust from your small group. Ask them, what should I give away this year? How should, I, what, should I give to this? Should I give to that? Like, how, how much do you think is appropriate that I spend monthly on these expenses? Ask. Get advice. Have people talk to you. Um, I would even say this, that I know there are people here, and people have told us that this is true. Uh, if, if you want, if you have questions about finances, if you are unsure uh, how to pay off your debt or how to start to give or any of those, there are people here who would love to sit down with you and just ask questions. What do you want with your money? How do you want to spend it? How do you want to save it? How do you want to give it? How can we help you with that? 
Right? If you need that, I mean, we absolutely connect, can connect you to people who'd be willing to sit down and walk through this stuff together. All right? So ask for advice. Number five, divert an additional specific expense. Okay? This is a little side thing you can do. If you say, I, there's nothing left for me to give. I'm right where I, you know, I'm tapped out. I don't have any more to give. Then I would say, if you still want to give, just divert an additional specific expense, which means this. To set aside a ministry of your choosing, a gift that you want to give, and one day a week, bring lunch to work. One day a week, ride your bike instead of driving. One day a week, don't go to Starbucks. One day a week, give, give up something once. Do that for 40 days, Right? And then whatever amount you didn't spend on that, give it away. And you'll realize you had some to give away. Right? So just divert a specific expense. Number six, allow your money to move the kingdom forward. Allow your money to move the kingdom forward. Um, next week, we are talking about this idea. Um, money empowers mission. In a small group, we were joking the other day, uh, mo money, mo problems. You've heard that phrase, right? I, I want to change it. Mo money, mo mission, right? Like, <laughs> that's what we can do with it, right? So uh, next week, we'll talk about um, mo mission. Got it? Number seven, final one. Final one. If you are afraid to give, give. If you're afraid to give, give. Here's why I say that. Um, if you go back to this passage, if you look in the text, we have uh, Matthew 6, reading through it. Don't store up treasure. Don't have an evil eye. Instead, have a healthy eye or a generous eye. Um, can't serve both God and money. And then immediately following, you can't love both God and money, right? Immediately following that is this like beautiful section. In every, every time in the Gospels, this little section is told, this immediate section follows. And the section goes like this. Um, don't you know, good children, don't you know, that the sparrow does not provide for itself, and yet God takes care of it? And don't you know, good children, that the flowers in the field don't ever make themselves beautiful the way they do, and yet I maintain their beauty? Don't you know that if you are generous, I will, as your father, provide for you? He says it again and again. At one point he even says, God says, listen, my children, it is God's good pleasure, my good pleasure, to give you the kingdom. Right? Seek first the kingdom, everything else will be added to you. All of that language follows this passage. And here's what struck me for the first time. I have read through this hundreds and hundreds of times. And I always go, yeah, that's a good reminder. That's a good reminder that, hey, you should be generous, you should give, and God will take care of you. Good reminder, and I just keep checking it off as that. Yeah, good reminder, good reminder, good reminder. And I had this belief, uh, and I've probably always had this belief, that if you create the habit of giving if you continue to be generous, if you see God provide, you get to this place in life where it's time to write a bigger check 
or it's time to go, man, this is a little risky, but I'm going to do it. And you've built up enough like spiritual giving muscles or something that you're at the point where you're like, yep, done, love it, awesome, not worried, not nervous, right? And then it dawned on me for the first time that I think the reason this follows this passage, because he's not speaking to people who weren't giving. He's speaking to people who are already giving. He's speaking to people just like you and me. That we're already trying to be generous. And we already know God provides. So why would he say it and reinforce it again and again and again? And here's why I'm convinced. Because it doesn't matter if you've done it for the first time or if you've done it for the thousandth time. When you take a step closer toward God and away from entitlement, toward generosity and away right from money, the further you go, each step is still fraught with fear. Each step, when you give, it's like, what about this time? What if this time? This makes no sense. I mean, I had to think John Wesley when he was like, okay, give away 92, 92,000 this year. I'll give that away this year. That he had to be going, what if this one year, like, my health goes bad? Or what if my buggy breaks down? Or whatever it is he was driving, right? Like, <laughs> like what do I do? Like, how, how's that going to happen? Like, I, I should probably this year, like, I mean, what if I had 90 and I just gave away, like, what if I gave away 50 of the 90 and kept the, I mean, that, wow, that's still pretty crazy generous. Give away 50,000, keep like 30-some thousand, like, for myself, like, that'd be Awesome. And then I would have a backup plan, right? Then I'd be able to take care of myself. And I think what we're seeing is Jesus puts that in there because he's going, man, if you keep radically giving, you, you will have to keep hearing. It's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. And God, I do think it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. I think it is your good pleasure to remind us that if we seek first the kingdom, everything else will be added unto us. That you will provide for all of our needs. That you will continue to sustain us. That we can actually continue to be a person that does not worry, but rather places all trust in your hands. God, may we be people who don't store up treasure for the temporary. May we be people that don't look to serve the master of money, but look to serve you, look to be generous, look to treasure and put our treasures in heaven. And in doing so, God, may we live with deep generosity and compassion toward others. God, may we fulfill the law by putting others first, meeting their needs, and then allowing you to meet ours. May you be our provider, our sustainer, and may your spirit make us rich in faith as we leave today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.